thank you very much. That was absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Whenever I'm sitting up here about to preach, I wish the music could go on till about one o'clock. <laughs> and uh, today I was wishing that it would go on till one o'clock, but thank you. That was beautiful. And uh, uh, music expresses for us what mere words cannot. Uh, so thank you for using your gift of music to glorify God. Thank you. It's a joy to be in front of you here this morning, today. Uh, my name is uh, Conrad Vine, and um, it's my privilege to be able to stand before you today and share with you uh, some of the love letters of Jesus to his church. Now, um, <clears throat> I'm not a very romantic kind of person. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you I'm not the greatest romantic. Uh, back when I was about 21 at university, um, this was about 1992 or so, I wrote somebody a love letter, and it was uh, six pages long, and I thought it was a great letter because uh, Britain was discussing whether to join the euro or not, and so I gave a six-page discussion of whether it's wise to join the euro or not, do we have sufficient economic convergence with Germany and France, what are our comparative inflation rates and, and interest rates and so forth. I thought it was a great letter. Um, it didn't achieve its, uh, its attended uh, objective, though, and... Um, that person and I are not married. And so um, I'm not uh, the most romantic of individuals. Um, and my, my attempt at writing love letters falls far short of the mark. Um, so, uh, but in the letters of Ch Jesus to the churches of Revelation, we find that Jesus speaks with a deep love for his churches. And uh, in the seven churches of Revelation, we know in Revelation there are seven churches, there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, there are seven final plagues, there are seven horns, there are seven mountains, there are seven seals, there are seven spirits, there are seven angels. There are seven, many kinds of seven in the book of Revelation, but the stuff that really sticks in my mind and in my heart are Jesus' seven love letters to his church. And so today we're going to be looking through those seven love letters from Jesus to his church. Um, even though they're written to those seven churches that existed back in the first century AD, at the end of the first century, about 90 AD, as uh, Brother Tom Wilson expressed in his pastoral prayer, every message concludes with a similar phrase that says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Which means that these letters are not just given to the church of Ephesus or Smyrna, Philadelphia, Thyatira, etc., but they are given to all believers through all time in all countries who want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so today we're going to look through seven letters of love from Jesus to his precious church. We're going to look at seven churches that represent seven kinds of Christian today. And we're going to hear what Jesus has to say to each of those kinds of Christians. So, uh, before we begin, bow your heads with me and we invite the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather uh, on your day, we gather in the presence of your Spirit, as did John the Apostle who was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Father, we gather in your house as your people Father, we are the descendants of those first seven churches of Asia Minor. I ask, Father, that as we hear these love letters from Jesus, we will hear him speaking to our hearts. Father, may we not hear as outsiders looking in on a love relationship, but may we hear as the intended object of his love. I pray, Lord, that we will respond as Jesus intends through this coming week and in our lives to come. I pray you will speak for me and through me, and that your spirit be the only spirit present within these four walls. We ask these mercies in Jesus' holy and powerful name. Amen. So, <clears throat> the message to the seven churches, um, if you go to Turkey today, uh, you go to the seven churches, this is a map of western Turkey, and you'll see up there on the map here is Istanbul, and there's the Sea of Marmara, there's the Black Sea, there's the, uh, there's the Adriatic, and this is the Med down here. And uh, Istanbul is the largest city of Turkey. The capital is Ankara, which is somewhere over here. But the third city of Turkey is Izmir. It's down here. That's ancient Smyrna. And at the seven churches, they're on an ancient postal route. Uh, here is Sardis. Here is Pergamum. Um, here's Izmir. Ephesus is just further down on the coast here. And uh, the, the seven letters Paul wrote from, uh, John wrote from Patmos, which is an island just off the coast here. And John would have seen Ephesus, the lights of Izmir, 
um, Patmos is just out here. He would have seen the lights of Izmir by night. And then he would have known that the postal route went from Izmir to Pergamum and round these seven churches. This is the area of the seven churches. They were on a postal route in ancient Turkey. And um, John knew that when he sent a message to, for instance, Ephesus, um, the message would go to Smyrna, then it would go to Pergamum, then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and conclude in Laodicea. This was an ancient postal route, and uh, the letter was going to get around all of those seven churches in western Turkey of today, or Asia Minor, as it was called uh, back in the time of the Apostle John. So the first letter comes to the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus was the commercial capital of Asia Minor. It was a very wealthy port city. It sat on a major east-west highway, and through it traveled cargo to Asia and to Europe. Um, you see this on the main streets going through Ephesus. Um, you just take a look. The streets are not lined with, with cement or with asphalt. They're lined with marble. As you go around the ancient world, um, it's kind of surprising that marble was as common in their building construction as brick or wood is for us today. So the streets are made of marble. Down the side of the streets, uh, you have the, um, the, these marble columns. And when you see the marble columns, they taper absolutely perfectly. Every single one of them. They don't kind of go up like this at all. The, the construction techniques were quite advanced. And then they were polished, so they looked almost like glass. And as you go down the street, you have these temples on the side... And uh, you have um, their equivalent of, you know, Walmart on the side. You have little stores on uh, the side of the streets. And um, as you go down the, the, the marble, um, because um, horses and, and donkeys walk up and down, they have grooves cut in the marble. So when the donkeys are going up and down in the rain, they've got something to put their feet in just so they don't fall over. Um, they were quite sophisticated. This is the library of Ephesus. Uh, this was there when the apostle Paul was there. When the Apostle Paul was there in Acts 16, many people turned to Jesus Christ in faith. And what do they do with their books of magic? They took them out of the library and they burnt them in the streets. Now, this is the library of Ephesus. It's a beautiful facade. And here you have the public toilets of the time. Um, they had unisex toilets. And um, you kind of, you, in case you're wondering what that is, um, that's where you sit. And in front of you, there's a little channel here. And this is where the water flows, and they'd give you a stick with a piece of sponge on it for your hygiene. And the waste would drop down into a channel underneath these seats, about six or eight feet down. And then they'd have water running down there. The, the channel was set at an angle, and they'd have a slave sweeping it out from time to time. That's probably not a job you're going to apply for. At the side of the main streets, uh, you have these beautiful mosaics on the floor. So this is the main street going through Ephesus. These are the shops. And the sides of the streets are lined with these beautiful mosaics on the floor. Very beautiful indeed. And in case you're wondering, are these people cave dwellers? Do they live in wooden shacks or lean-tos? Absolutely not. They lived in beautiful, modern condominium apartment blocks. Um, here you have um, some condos that have been excavated. They have, the, they have the columns. You have a private temple within a condo. The walls are lined with marble and reliefs. You have these beautiful decorations on the floor made out of glass, um, different colored glass. You have um, um, plaster and marble uh, on the walls with decorations cut into it. Uh, the flooring is raised. The flooring is 18 inches above the ground. Under the flooring, you get these, these, these um, pillars, and uh, they would um, b burn wood, and they'd pump the hot air under the floor so that you had underfloor heating as you walked around. Um, they certainly knew how to live, those ancient Romans. This is at the front of the temple of Ephesus, and you have here an ancient woman. This is one of the patrons. Her name is, uh, I forget, I can't see her full name here. This is just a random tourist who wouldn't get out of the way. Um, but she's immortalized forever. She's now on the internet. Uh, this is uh, uh, one of the patrons of the library. You notice that she has her head covered. Uh, in the time of Paul, ladies of the night would wear their hair long to indicate they were ladies of the night. Respectable matrons would cover their heads. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says the church in Corinth, women should go around with their, their heads covered, among other reasons. This is Diana of the Ephesians, the goddess worshipped. Um, her temple was viewed as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Not much left of the temple, temple but this is a fertility um, statue here. And here you come to the, the amphitheater of Ephesus. This is where they cried, great is Diana of the Ephesians for two hours on end. You can get many thousands of people into here. 
And you can stand at the bottom where I am standing here in this scene. And you can speak as I'm speaking to you now. And it goes all the way from the bottom to the top. And um, you can be heard absolutely perfectly at the top. The acoustics are pitch perfect. Uh, we would struggle to build a better amphitheater today. And they chiseled that out of the side of the mountainside. These were, this was a sophisticated society. When Paul wrote the letter of, Eph of Ephesians... Um, with the most sublime theological reflection, he was assuming they could understand it. These were people who were capable of the most sublime theological reflection and, 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 and insight and thinking. And so these were not um, village idiots the Apostle Paul was writing to. And this is the church that receives the first love letter from Jesus. And under the name Ephesus, pardon me, my voice is kind of rough today. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, Verses uh, 2, as we come to the letter to the church of Ephesus. And um, Jesus speaks to this church. The name Ephesus means desirable, representing the first love experience of this apostolic church. The church here was started by Aquila and Priscilla. They were lay church planters. Uh, they had left Rome when the emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome in AD 51. And uh, after Aquila and Priscilla were there, they mentored a young apostle called Apollos. I was a super preacher, you might say. And then the Apostle Paul came and he lived and worked in Ephesus for between two and three years. And if you look in the letter to the church of Ephesus, listen to what Jesus says to them in Revelation 2 verse 2. He says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit, you hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what's Jesus' basic message to the church of Ephesus? It's this, that they've lost their first love experience. These are essentially loveless Christians. And uh, what was this church like? What was love like in this church before this love letter comes their way? We'll turn back to the book of Ephesians. Paul describes what it means to live as a loving Christian. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 through to the end of that chapter, verse 32. Paul describes what it means to live as a loving Christian. And you notice that when Paul describes what it means to be a loving Christian, he doesn't describe what you believe. He describes how you interact with other people. So there in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, this is the command of Paul to this church, the same church of, Ephes of Ephesus. He says there, verse Ephesians 4:25. So then, putting away falsehood, let us all speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the, sin, the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing, rather than let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is what it means to experience the love of God. For loveless Christians, the call is to return to love one another and to love our Heavenly Father. And the Apostle Paul describes eloquently here what it means to be a love-filled Christian. To be a love-filled Christian means to treat one another with kindness. It means to never knock somebody down with your voice or with your speech. It means to build people up. It means to be an avenue, a channel of God's grace to those around you. It means to be merciful to, other, to each other, tender-hearted to each other, gracious to each other as we ask God to be towards us. And so you may say, do I know whether I'm a loveless Christian or a love-filled Christian? Well, answer yourself this. How do you treat your neighbor? If we do not love our neighbor... It's an indicator that we do not love God. If we do not love God, that is manifest in a lack of love 
for our neighbor. And so this first letter from Jesus to the first of these seven churches is an appeal to Christians who've lost that love, who are Christians in name, who are Christians in doctrine, but they are no longer Christians indeed, to remember that the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and the second is like unto it, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is calling us to love one another, and that means to build one another up relentlessly, to seek out uh, the, the building up of our brother or our sister in Jesus Christ. This is the first letter of Jesus, love letter of Jesus to the seven churches. Now, the second of the seven churches is Smyrna. Now, Smyrna has the distinction of being the oldest three-level shopping mall in the world. Um, here you have um, Smyrna is the ancient city of modern city of Izmir, city of about four or five million on the Aegean coast. And there is, a, there is an Adventist church there these days, praise the Lord. And here is the basement of the ancient shopping mall. Um, they have these Roman arches, and you have the, the wastewater runs through the middle. It also cools it down in there. And then they would have alcoves with the shops all along here. And then you have the ground-level um, shopping mall, and then you have columns supporting another shopping mall, a third level. It was a multi-story shopping mall. They certainly knew how to live back in the day. And uh, the city of uh, Smyrna, it goes from the top of a mountain here all the way down. You can see the ancient Agora or marketplace here. And it goes all the way down to the coast of the Aegean. It's kind of sprawled on the side of a mountain. It's in a beautiful, beautiful setting. Now, if Ephesus, uh, Jesus is speaking to love less Christians, in Smyrna, Jesus is speaking to persecuted Christians. The themes of life death and resurrection permeate this love letter in Revelation 2 verses 8 through 11 where Jesus says this in verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Beware the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so you may be tested and for 10 days you'll have affliction. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus introduces himself to persecuted Christians as the one who was dead and who has come to life. And this letter is written to Christians who are bound for death, but to a promise the crown of eternal life. Now this letter here, historically, uh, we apply to the time of the Roman persecutions from at AD 100 to AD 313. Uh, during 303 to 313, the Emperor Diocletian was trying to wipe out Christianity from the Roman Empire. And he, he killed and slaughtered and crucified Christians all across the ancient Roman Empire. When the Council of Nicaea was called in AD 325, and most of the bishops who arrived from around the Roman Empire were lame. They were, they were lame. They were blind. They'd had their limbs taken off. Uh, they had their tongues pulled out. They could no longer see. Their bodies had been dipped in boiling oil. The Council of Nicaea was a meeting of survivors. The most famous member of this church was a guy called Polycarp. And if you Google this afternoon the martyrdom of Polycarp, you'll discover the story of the Bishop of Smyrna, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. And uh, he was uh, the bishop, and when a persecution broke out in about AD 150, um, he'd been bishop there for many decades, or the overseer of the churches. And he was um, arrested. He was hauled before the Roman governor in Smyrna there. And he was commanded to sacrifice to the Roman emperor. He was commanded to put some incense onto the altar of the Roman emperor and to say, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. And he refused, saying, no, Jesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. I will not put the incense there. And he was told, if you just put the incense there, we will let you go. And he said, no. Famous words, he said, for fourscore and six years I have served my Lord, and he has never done me any wrong. How now can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Famous words. He was condemned to die, but because it was after three o'clock in the afternoon, he could not be eaten by the lions. Apparently, they had OSHA back in the day, and they said lions can't eat after three o'clock. So he wasn't condemned to be eaten by the lions. Instead, he was taken to the arena, and he was beheaded. His martyrdom became very, very famous in ancient times, and they wrote stories and books about the martyrdom of Polycarp. And Polycarp died for one reason, his unyielding faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we tend to believe that a martyr 
is someone who dies for their faith. But this is not true according to the Scriptures. In the New Testament, a martyr, the word is martus in Greek, a martyr is one who testifies to their faith while alive, even unto death if necessary. Polycarp was a martyr not because he died, but because he was steadfast in his confession of his faith while he was yet alive, while he could face consequences. Today, in the world in which we live, things appear nice and calm here in Berrien Springs. But if you go to the U.S. State Department Commission on International Religious Freedom, you'll discover that last year over 94,000 Christians were killed for their faith around the world. That's almost 2,000 Christians are dying every week for their faith. And I'm not saying they're dying peacefully in hospital beds. They're dying violent, bloody, and bloodthirsty deaths. It's happening all around us today. I got back on um, Wednesday night. It was a 66-hour journey from somewhere in Central Asia uh, where persecution is real. And uh, last Sabbath, I worshipped in a house church. Um, it was a house church because there are Wahhabis in the area who want to close down the Christian witness. And today I worship here where there is freedom of religion. And I wonder which world do I really belong in? This world or that world? As we sit here in, in relative comfort and security, there are Christians today who are meeting for fear of their lives. The letter to the church of Smyrna is Jesus' love letter to those who are faithful to him unto death. He, Jesus is speaking to us today as we confess him as Lord, regardless of the consequences in our personal lives, regardless of the impact on our careers, our finances, or our social prospects, or our opportunities for advancement in Western society. In confessing Jesus as Lord today, we have the assurance that when Jesus comes again, he will confess before the universe that we are in his book of life. And we will, like the ancient members of the Church of Smyrna, we will receive that crown of imperishable life. It's Jesus' love letter to a suffering um, church that is suffering but is yet to bow the knee to Baal. And then we come to the third love letter of these seven love letters. This is the message to the Church of Pergamum. It's in there in Revelation chapter 2. And um, Pergamum was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It's on top of a big hill. You have to go up a gondola to get to it. And uh, these guys are pretty good at engineering. Um, the, the city sits on top of a mountain. And the question is, how do they get water there? How do you get water on top of a mountain in a dry, arid part of the world? Well, the answer is that they built reservoirs about 50 miles away in other mountains that were higher yet. And then they dug pipes from those reservoirs down into the valleys. Then those pipes came up to the top of this mountain. And because of gravity, the water went from 40, 50 miles away through those pipes. And it came up to on the top of the mountain, you have endless flowing water. I mean, these guys were smart back in the day. And you climb to the top of Pergamon where well, you go in a, in a, put in a pagoda. Uh, gondola, and here you have a, a, a scale model of the ancient city of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was where they first developed parchment. Uh, there was a, 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 a pharaoh who decided to have an economic embargo, and he wasn't going to export papyrus around the Rush, um, Roman Empire, so the city of Pergamum decided, well, if we can't have papyrus, we'll just develop something called parchment, which is made out of lamb and goat skin, and that's, that those uh, parchments were used for over 2,000 years. This is a scale model of the city. You see there's an amphitheater on the side of the hill. It's at 70 degrees. Don't go there if you have vertigo, I can assure you. And you have a temple of Trajan up here. And um, then you have a temple of Zeus, the supreme god of the, of the Greek pantheon of gods. He equates with Jupiter in the Roman pantheon of gods. A temple of Minerva and so forth. And Zeus was the, Zeus was the chief god for the, for the Greeks. The Apostle Paul says that when the, when the pagans bow down towards these idols, they're bowing down before demons. So you might conclude that, logically speaking, a temple of Zeus, who is the chief of the gods of Greece, would be the chief of the demons, which would be Satan. And so um, this letter is written to a church where the, where the throne of Satan is. Here you have the temple of Trajan. Uh, these are very tall pillars. You and I are about as tall as this thing down here. Um, this is maybe 80, 90, 100 feet high. And uh, these things, they, they've stood the test of time. There's the amphitheater on the side of the hill. Again, if you have vertigo, don't go there. Uh, there's nowhere to, you know, if you fall, there's only one way you're going to go, and that's a long, long way down. 
and at the bottom there there's a small cliff so you're probably not going to come back uh, you might say it's a cure for your vertigo so there's the, there's the amphitheater on, on the side of, of Pergamum what is the message to the church of Pergamum well we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 2 Jesus says this I know where you are living where Satan's throne is yet you are holding fast to my name and you did not deny your faith in me even the days of Antipas my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan lives but I have a few things against you you have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication so you also have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans repent then if not I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth let everyone who has an ear listen to what the spirit is saying to the churches in this message to the church of Pergamum uh, Jesus is speaking to compromised Christians if Ephesus Jesus is speaking to love less Christians and in Smyrna Jesus is speaking to persecuted Christians in the church of Pergamum Jesus is dealing with corrupted and compromised Christians how do we know that because they tolerate the teachings of Balaam see just before the Israelites enter the promised land they've survived idolatry with the golden idol at the foot of Mount Sinai they've survived doubt and grumbling through 40 years in the wilderness they've survived Balaam trying to curse them and not being able to curse them but the final attack by God by Satan on God's people before they enter the promised land was sexual immorality these are the teachings of Balaam and today we live in an era Whereas we are on the verge of the promised land, the coming again of Jesus Christ, how is Satan attacking God's church? He's attacking it through the teachings of an ideology that is sweeping our world, that is promoting the deification of the desires of the flesh. This is a message to compromised Christians, Christians who are so um, immersed in the ideas and ethos of our world today that they no longer can distinguish right from wrong. And they think that the applause of the world equates, is the equivalent of the applause of God. So what is the cure? What does Jesus says in love to these compromised Christians? He says there to everyone who conquers in verse 17, I'll give some of the hidden manna. The repentant Christians will eat of the hidden manna. In John chapter 6, verse 31 through 35, Jesus is the true manna of God. The repentant will receive a new name from God in this verse a new beginning and the promise of renewed walk with him. The new name that John refers to also refers to the name of God, which the faithful members of Pergamum hold fast to during their time of compromise and persecution. So these compromised Christians, when they turn back to God and turn away from the deification of the flesh that we see even in our era today, become the physical representation of the invisible God. When people see them, they see God. What a beautiful promise from Jesus. They faithfully represent Jesus in an era of compromise with sin. And so this love letter to the church of Pergamum, to compromised, corrupted Christians, Jesus says, turn back to me, feed on the true manner of God, that is Jesus and his teachings in the gospel as we journey to heaven. And it is the teachings of Jesus who help us distinguish error from truth, enabling us to present a faithful witness in a compromised and a corrupted world, in the world in which we live today. We then come to the church of Thyatira. This is the fourth of the seven churches. Uh, when I was a young boy, I'd follow my father's sermons. And I was always counting down progress, okay? Because I was hungry. So we've done, we're on the fourth out of seven here. The Thyatira, there's not much you can say about Thyatira today. This is all that remains. There's a, there's a, a Turkish city built on the ancient site of Thyatira. They've dug up this bit here. And so you can walk around ancient Thyatira in a matter of five or ten minutes. And so if... Um, Ephesus represents loveless Christians, Smyrna represents persecuted Christians, Pergamum represents corrupted Christians or compromised Christians, Thyatira represents cruel Christians. Uh, the ancient city of Thyatira, um, there are two valleys near it where the madder root is grown. It produces a dye that when processed turns into the color purple. This was the color of royalty, the color of the Roman Senate. You remember in the story of Acts chapter 16, there was a convert in Philippi in northern Greece. Her name was Lydia. She was a dealer in purple goods from 
Thyatira. This is where she, where she bought her purple goods from. Thyatira was known as the place of the worship of the sun god. He was known locally, his name was Terimnos, the god of the sun. And look how Jesus presents himself to a city where the sun god is worshipped in Revelation 2 and verse 18. He says, these are the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Yes, Jesus outshines the sun god himself. And that the church of Thyatira represents historically uh, the, the Dark Ages, when there was a union of church and state, and the papacy was a ravenous beast, killing tens of millions of people through the Dark Ages for their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the church where Jezebel is now on the throne. In the church of Pergamum, the church is, is, is compromised with the teachings of this world. It's a corrupted church. It's a compromised church. But now in Thyatira, evil reigns on the throne of the church itself. Jezebel now sits enthroned. But this is the church of some faithful Christians, people like Peter Waldo, John Huss, Martin Luther, and uh, John Wycliffe. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, hang on. Hang in there. I'm coming soon. The church is a union of church and state. There is an intolerance of truth, and the persecution of the saints characterize this era. This is the world of the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Albigenses, the Waldenses, the rack and the thumbscrew, and the martyr's death at the stake. But in this letter to his church, Jesus says in verse 23, he says, And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. You see, Jesus speaks to a cruel church that sits in judgment on the saints, but Jesus reminds him that he is the ultimate judge. That no matter what the world or a corrupt church may do to the saints of God, no matter what they may do today, there is an ultimate judge, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he will ultimately vindicate his saints. He says, all the churches will know that I, Jesus, I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. This is a message of hope for Christians who have suffered under cruel or corrupt um, Christians themselves. In an era of corrupt judges and bribes, juries, and unjust sentences passed on the saints, Jesus speaks to this church as the faithful witness. And to those who are faithful in this time of corruption, to those who refused to participate in this corrupt union of earthly power with church that Thyatira had become, there's the promise they will share in the dominion, the eternal dominion of the universe with Jesus Christ. To the one who conquers, in verse 25, Jesus gives the promise of the morning star. It's an allusion to Numbers 24, 17. It's the promise of the second coming when all corrupt unions of church and state and mosque and state and temple and state and atheist ideology and state with all their instruments of oppression, torture and persecution will be swept away. Oh, what a wonderful promise for suffering Christians. And Jesus distinguishes in this letter between the fallen church of Thyatira and the perseverance of the individual saints within Thyatira. Even in a fallen church, God has his own, and Jesus speaks to them today. We may not see them now, but God still has his 7,000 who have yet to bow the knee to the bales of our era, as in the days of the original Jezebel. Hang on, says Jesus, to those individual believers faithful to him in an era of corruption and cruelty. Hang on, and you will see the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful promise. We then come to the, the uh, next church. This is Sardis. Now, Sardis is an interesting place. Um, it's, uh, it's located, the ancient city was located on top of a mountain. You see the mountain here. This is a cliff. It's about 300 feet or 100 meters high. And uh, this was the, the capital of an ancient king called Croesus. He was one of the richest guys that ever lived. And he had massive stores of gold. And people say, you're rich as Croesus. This guy was one of the first in history to mint gold coins. Uh, he dealt in gold, he had his gold um, stored up in a fortress on top of the mountain, and he thought he was secure. The city of Sardis were uh, secure on top of this massive cliff, and you can walk around this whole city. There's a very narrow mountain path up on the backside there, but it's very hard to get into uh, the fortress on top of this city. So over the years, the city's uh, kind of like urban sprawl came out into the valley beneath. I'm standing in the urban sprawl down here, the suburban areas. But Croesus had his fortress up here. He was so secure in his fortress 
He thought, nobody can get in to attack me here, that he didn't bother to lock the gates at night. <coughs> and one day, a general called Alexander the Great comes by, and he looks at this city on top of, of a mountain, and he challenges his soldiers who can enter the city of Sardis. And so, a few brave men that night, they climbed the cliff. This is like climbing that big yellow dome, Yellowstone. Is it half dome? I mean, it's sheer, just like that. It's not as big, but it's pretty sheer. They scaled that rock face, and they came to the top where the gates were open, and they opened the gates, and the Greek army that was at the other side, at the bottom of the mountain trail, they marched in, and they conquered the city of Sardis. Sardis dwindled away, and today there is no city in the ancient location of Sardis. That population paid the painful price for their lack of vigilance. The church of Sardis, you turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. The church of Sardis represents the church of the early Reformation. It's that time in history when we rediscovered the word of God, when we went from the Latin back to the Hebrew and the Greek. And as we translated the scriptures from the Hebrew and the Greek, the original manuscripts, wherever the word of God went, there was personal reformation and ecclesiastical transformation. The world was transformed by the word of God. And the initial reformation was one of the most powerful impulses in the, in the history of humanity. But the church of Sardis historically fell asleep. You see, within a hundred years of Martin Luther, uh, the Protestants were fighting amongst each other and killing each other over whether you believed this set of beliefs or that set of beliefs. And the different denominations started to emerge, and some were saying, well, we believe in the Augsburg Confession or the 39 Articles or the Westminster Confession or the 28 Fundamentals. And rather than mining Scripture for more and more truth, we became defend content with defending what we already believed to be truth. And so we had a very defensive posture theologically. The Church of Sardis um, represents sleeping Christians. Sleeping Christians who are self-sufficient, um, behind, secure behind their creedal statements and institutional churches. If Laodicea, if, if Ephesus is loveless Christians, Pergamum, uh, Smyrna is persecuted Christians, Pergamum is uh, compromised Christians, Thyatira is cruel Christians, the Church of Sardis are sleeping Christians. Christians who have a sense of their own sufficiency. Everything's okay with me. I believe the 28 fundamentals. I sit in an institutional church. My pathway, my pa passport to heaven is secure. And Jesus says to this church, he says in verse 2, I know your works. Praise the Lord, you have works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard it. Obey, repent. If you do not wake up, I will come as a thief in the night, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. If you conquer, you'll be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Uh, the, the, the church of the, the, the Sardis church is a self-sufficient church. And Jesus has these imperatives in this letter. He says, wake up, remember, obey, repent, strengthen. These are all imperatives. If the faithful remnant of Sardis, who are self-secure behind their fundamental beliefs, will only wake up and walk with Jesus afresh and put on the robes of righteousness on a daily basis, there again is the promise of eternal life. It is not enough to slumber be on, on, uh, on, uh, on, on, on the, uh, uh, behind your high walls, the walls of your creedal statements, and say, I'm okay with God because I believe X, Y, and Z. That's not enough to be saved. This is the ancient city here. These are the baths. In fact, that's the entrance to the cold room. The cold room is known as the frigidarium. We get the word frigid from that. Uh, the warm room, or the lukewarm room, was behind this, so that's fallen over. That's known as the tepidarium. We get the word tepid from that. And the hot room was known as the, um, the caldarium. We get the word scalded from that. If you've been scalded by hot water, you see? You had caldarium, tepidarium, and frigidarium. Uh, these were not, as I say, these were not, you know, um, cave dwellers. You see those beautiful, um, the carvings, that's marble, and this is t uh, 2,500 years later. It's still standing. Uh, they're carving in, in Greek, 
And in other parts, they're carving in Latin, so they are a bilingual society. They have the time, effort, money, and the skill to produce incredible buildings like this. And uh, they must have thought that they were doing okay down there in Sardis. Here you have another temple. Um, there's a backside of the cliffs that Alexander the Great scaled. And some of the, the city streets of Sardis. I mean, these are big buildings. I see how thick those walls are. They'd certainly um, built for the long haul, you might say, back in the day. But the church of Sardis, the church of Sardis is asleep behind their creedal statements. And Jesus writes to sleepy Christians who, are, who lazily depend upon cognitive assent to intellectual statements of doctrine as being their passports to eternity. And he says, wake up, be alert, remember where you have come from, repent and strengthen. Jesus echoes what Ezekiel said many years before in Ezekiel 33, uh, the call of God to his people, where Ezekiel says this, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn back from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Turn then and live, Ezekiel chapter 33. The message to Sardis, to sleepy Christians, is this. Don't think that just because you believe 28 fundamental beliefs, or the Augsburg Confession, or the 39 Articles, don't think that intellectual assent is your passport to heaven. What we need is a living walk with Jesus Christ. And he appeals to this church, not this church here in particular, but to the church of Sardis. He's saying, to you sleepy Christians, wake up. I'm your lover. I am the bridegroom, and you are the bride. And the bridegroom and the bride are supposed to know each other and to spend time with each other. Wake up, O church of Sardis. Wake up, O sleepy Christians. Then we come to Philadelphia. There's not much you can see in Philadelphia today. Uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love. It was a name given by one Greek king to his brother. And um, the city of Philadelphia had constant um, earthquakes. And so... In the rest of the cities out there, you see columns, but here you see a, a massive pillar. Um, the reason they have a massive pillar is everything kept falling over. And the people of Philadelphia were used to living in, in the, the, uh, the countryside around the city because there were constant earthquakes and aftershocks and tremors. And so when they did build, it was these massive um, structures like this. This here, you can see, you know, uh, the, there are probably four arches coming out here. I know that Dr. Von Maurer is with us. You can tell us that they've probably got four arches coming out. It's a big structure here. Um, but they're not building with columns in Philadelphia like in the other cities. They're building these towers. Why? Because everything is prone to falling over in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, we find the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 and uh, <clears throat> verse 7. It says, The angel of the church of Philadelphia write. These are the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, when historically was the church of Philadelphia? Well, after the Reformation, we then move into the era of Protestant missions. This is the 18th and 19th centuries. And Jesus has no rebuke for the church of Philadelphia. There's nothing bad Jesus has to say about a church that's engaged in missionary activity. Can you say amen? Uh, Jesus has no rebuke for this church. Rather, he sets before them, in verse 8, an open door which no one is able to shut. What is this open door? Well, just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 1, John the Revelator, he, say, he sees there, I, after this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. If you go to many doors in the world today, they're closed. If you go to government buildings, the doors are locked, the doors, doors are guarded, the doors are bolted shut. But the doorway to heaven, to the throne room of God, is open for missionary-minded Christians. You see, the message here is that when you are mission-minded and you step forward in faith for Jesus Christ to share the everlasting gospel, the doorway, is doorway of heaven is always open so that, we might receive, um, so that we might receive grace and mercy to help in every hour of need. And so when God sees this church here in village, when we send missionaries to Montana... 
when we build churches in El Salvador and we sacrifice to make that possible, when we send missionaries down to the Amazonia rainforest, when we go down to Puerto Rico or Haiti and we do rebuilding efforts down there, as we engage in mission service, we receive the blessing of God. And there is the assurance that when you step forward in faith for Jesus, there is an open door which no one can close, no matter how difficult or desperate the circumstances, where you can approach the throne of God to find grace and mercy to help in every hour of need. It's a beautiful promise to the church, to the missionary-minded Christians of Philadelphia. The uh, church of Philadelphia, Jesus says to them, because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. In these um, seven letters, love letters from Jesus, there are three tribulations spoken of. The first is the persecution of Smyrna by the Roman emperors. That's the letter to suffering Christians. Then there's the tribulation of Thyatira. That's the persecution by the papacy of God-fearers in which tens of millions of people were slaughtered. But the message to the Church of Philadelphia talks about the final hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the whole earth. This is the final crisis before Jesus comes again. And Jesus says to people who engage in missionary activity, you're going to pass through a crisis. A crisis will come your way. Don't think that because you're going to become a missionary, everything's going to become easy for you. Quite the opposite. You will face tribulation as a missionary-minded Christian. But he counsels these Christians, mission-minded Christians. He says, because you've kept my words of patient endurance. Jesus counsels mission-minded Christians who are engaged in mission work for Jesus, to face patiently the trials of everyday life. Because it is being faithful today in the small decisions of life, in the temptations we face on a daily basis, in the words we speak moment by moment, it is by being faithful in the small decisions of life that we prepare our character for whatever final crisis may come our way. Our character will be revealed in times of crisis. It will not be made in times of crisis. And Jesus is inviting us today to be faithful in whatever decisions you are making right this day or in this coming week. Be faithful to him. Ask yourself, what is the will of God in this case? Before you say a word, ask yourself, does this bring honor and glory to God? Does this build up or does this tear down? When you spend your money, ask yourself, does this further the kingdom of God or does this hinder the kingdom of God? Does this bring glory to God or does it bring glory to the idols of my life. Jesus is inviting missionary-minded Christians that, yes, though they are missionary-minded, he's saying, be faithful day by day. Be faithful in every decision you make, because when that final hour of tribulation comes upon the world, you want to be ready for it. And when that hour of tribulation comes your way, there is an open door to the throne room of heaven for every missionary-minded Christian that we may enter by faith through Jesus Christ, our mediator, when we may indeed find grace and mercy to help in every hour of need. It's a beautiful letter to missionary-minded Christians. And finally, we come to Laodicea. I read something on the internet recently. It said the most powerful word in Adventist preaching is the word finally. Because at the word finally, everybody bucks up. Okay? So, I hope you're all bucking up right now. This is the church message to the church of Laodicea. So, as we go back through these churches, Ephesus are loveless Christians... Smyrna are persecuted Christians, Pergamum are corrupted Christians or compromised Christians, Thyatira are cruel Christians, Sardis are sleepy Christians, uh, Philadelphia are missionary-minded Christians, and Laodicea are lukewarm Christians. Now, the city of Laodicea sits in a valley, and about five miles away on top of a hill is the city of Hierapolis. And Hierapolis um, <clears throat> doesn't mean it's higher. Um, the word higher means temple, so it's a city of temples. Um, the city of Hierapolis has these hot springs. They're very nice. I haven't been in those springs. Um, uh, so I don't know how hot they are, but people reliably assure me that when you go out in there, you come out looking a bit like a roast lobster. So uh, you go into these hot, hot springs, and the water flows from these springs. The Laodiceans were rich. They channeled the water from these springs down to Laodicea in the valley. Now, to get to Laodicea, the water has to... Hierapolis is up on the hill over here. The water has to come over these hills down here where it goes into aqueducts from this lake and it comes down here to Laodicea in the valley. But the water has to cross the hill and all this white stuff is not snow. These are the salts from the springs of Hierapolis. And when the water comes over that hill, it's hot. It's very hot. It's beautiful, yeah? 
And the water comes over here, and it's gathered here, then it goes in an aqueduct all the way down to Laodicea. And by the time it gets to Laodicea, that which was hot is cooling, 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 cooling. By the time it gets to Laodicea, it's lukewarm. This is the origin of the lukewarm water of Laodicea. Laodicea was a wealthy city. They had their own banking system. They had a medical college. Um, they produced an expensive black wool, and they had eye salve that they sold at a considerable profit. And in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, most of us are familiar with these verses. Jesus has no word of commendation for these lukewarm Christians. Absolutely not. Jesus does not speak as a suitor seeking to woo a loved one. He does not speak as a businessman seeking to close a deal. He does not speak as a politician who lies for votes. No. Jesus speaks in this passage in verse 14. He says, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. The Laodicean spiritual condition is so desperate that Jesus must speak directly even if it is painful at the time. Because the emergency of souls demands a direct approach by Jesus. Jesus rebukes the Laodiceans' self-sufficiency, their material self-sufficiency, their financial self-sufficiency, which mirrors their spiritual self-sufficiency. Laodicea has gold. We may have dollars, IRAs, and Roths. But according to this, this means nothing to Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter to Jesus how much gold you have, for our earthly gold is impure and filled with dross. Her eye salve may sell well in the stores of the time, but the Laodicean Christian is blind to his own spiritual poverty. Rather, says Jesus, they must buy ro white robes from him. Those white robes are later described in the Red Book of Revelation as the righteous deeds of the saints. And then we go back to uh, Jeremiah 23. The righteous deeds of the saints is actually the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Yahweh Tzidkanu, the Lord our righteousness. And the eye salve that we are to buy that we may understand our true spiritual condition, according to John 16, 8 through 10, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what does it cost for these lukewarm Laodicean Christians to buy these blessings from God? What does it cost? Does it cost $100? Can you buy it on, on um, Amazon Prime and get free delivery tomorrow? Well, actually it doesn't cost anything. The prophet Isaiah says this, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Yes, these gifts of Jesus, of his righteousness and the gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be bought with money. They do, you cannot value them or price them in terms of dollars, dimes or, or wire transfers or credit cards. But they will cost you your life. They'll cost you the loyalty of your heart for the rest of your life. But it's a price that is worth paying. In Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am standing at the door and I am knocking. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. And to the one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne. And when it says I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking, it's not that Jesus is standing there politely knocking like this. He's pounding on the door. He's pounding. He's pounding. He's hoping. He's waiting. He's waiting for someone to open the door of their heart that he may enter in and, and have fellowship with him. Uh, using this imagery, Jesus isn't speaking just to an individual. He's speaking to a church. The implication of the message to Laodicea is that at the end of time, Jesus is outside of his church trying to get into his church. He's trying to get into his church and he's pounding on the doors. Is there anybody there? He comes he stands, he pounds, he waits, he hopes. The one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, how will we respond today? These seven love letters from Jesus, they speak to each of us maybe at different times of our life. If you are suffering a deficit of love in your life, then the message to the church of Ephesus is for you. If you're experiencing persecution... And the message to the church of Smyrna is for you. If you have become corrupted by the dogmas of this world and no longer are sure of right from wrong, then the message of Pergamum, a message to a corrupted Christian, is for you. If you are in a position where you are acting in a cruel way over somebody else, if you have become cruel somehow in your faith, the message to the church of Thyatira is for you. If you are self-sufficient behind 28 fundamental beliefs and think that I believe, therefore I am saved, is true, which it is not, 
I believe, in terms of intellectual assent to certain doctrines, then the message of Sardis to sleepy Christians is Jesus' love letter to you. If you are a missionary-minded Christian today, and you say, I want to get involved in a whole range of missionary activities in this church, then the message of Jesus to the missionary church of Philadelphia is for you. And if you are a lukewarm Christian and not sure where you stand or what you believe, but all you know that, um, you know, uh, let's hear it. There's an old song, let's hear it for the bears, let's hear it for the trees running out of nothing in my deep freeze. I forget who wrote that, that little ditto, ditty. Uh, let's hear it for the bears, let's hear it for the trees running out of nothing in my deep freeze. That you're self-sufficient and no matter the world is falling apart, but I'm okay, thanks, I've got money in the bank. To lukewarm Christians... The love letter of Laodicea is written to you. In conclusion, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4, starts with these words, grace to you. Jesus starts these letters with a word of grace to his followers. And the very last sentence of the Bible, which is the very last sentence we have from Jesus, after the, book, the Gospels, after the book of Acts, chapters 1 and Acts um, when, 9, when Jesus appears to the apostle um, Paul on the road to Damascus, the very last phrase we have from Jesus is this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. See, the book of Revelation, these seven love letters, uh, they may be the heart of the book, but the two covers are a reminder of God's grace to his children. Grace is something that transforms every relationship. When there is no grace, you really don't have a relationship. When there is grace, then you can grow, and then you can find peace. Now, I asked my wife this morning if I could share this story. You will understand why. And she graciously gave her permission. But last December, I came down into the, into the kitchen. I noticed um, as I was getting ready for, for work that there was an envelope with my name written on it. So I looked at it and thought, oh, I wonder what this is for. So <clears throat> I walked back um, to see my wife, and I said, look, Ludo, I, um, I love you anyway. You know, if you overspent on the family budget this month, if you ding the car, you know, I love you anyway. You don't, don't need to give me a card like this. And she says, just, just open the card. So I opened the card and discovered, to my horror, that it was our wedding anniversary. And at that moment, <clears throat> I experienced grace. Now, I went to work. Um, I think some of you are nodding because some of you have gone through the same experience. Um, I went to work and I said to my assistant, Robin Morrison, I said, could you remind me today when I go home to get some flowers for my wife? I'll drop by Apple Valley and get some flowers. Just pretend I'm in a different time zone or something. So she said, sure. And as I was leaving the office, she says, Conrad, the flowers. I said, yep, the flowers. I've got it. And as I got in the car, somebody called me. Now, um, have you ever noticed that when you're driving home from work, you can get in the car and you can arrive home and have no conscious memory of what happened in between? Has any of you ever experienced that? Yes? The moment you get in the car, you're on autopilot. Okay? And I was thinking, I've got to get some flowers, I've got to get some flyers, flowers. Yes, hello? Hello? Yes? Oh, I'm at home already. How did that happen? And I walked in the house, and my wife looked at me expectantly, and there were no flowers. And once again, I experienced grace. You see... The seven love letters of Jesus to loveless Christians, persecuted Christians, compromised Christians, cruel Christians, sleepy Christians, missionary Christians, and lukewarm Christians were all in there somewhere. They begin with grace and they end with grace. So let me ask you today, when was the last time you experienced the grace of God to you? I'm not talking about when was the last time you sang Amazing Grace. I'm not talking about the last time you read a book about grace. I'm not asking you when was the last time you heard a sermon about grace. We may do all of these things. But until grace touches us, grace cannot flow through us to those around us. When was the last time you were overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness and mercy to you? Because when that happens, forevermore, from that moment on, you are a changed man, woman, boy or girl. These are love letters from Jesus that are based in grace, bounded by grace, built upon grace. Everything in these letters is built upon the grace of Jesus Christ. I remember my wedding anniversary last year 
not because of the anniversary, but because of the grace I experienced. I am mindful every day of what a worthless sinner I am and what a wonderful wife I have because I experienced grace. When we experience the grace of Jesus in our lives today, these letters take on a whole new meaning. They go from being a lifeless letter to a living love letter that transforms our lives, that speak to every aspect of our experience, our journey and our walk with God. So I want to challenge you today, when you go home, bend beside your bed, kneel beside your bed, and ask God to give you a sense of his grace again. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Know God's grace for yourself. Read these love letters, because they are love letters, written by Jesus to, he is the groom, we are the bride, written by a a groom to the bride, desperately saying, I want you to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So ask God today for a fresh outpouring of his grace in your life. Read those love letters afresh. Let your hearts be broken. Have a sense of how desperately you are in need of a savior. And have a sense afresh this week of what a wonderful savior Jesus Christ really is. Taste and see that God is good. He's a good savior. And Jesus is writing a love letter to us today because he wants us all to be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen.